Book One, Chapter Eighteen of the History of Pompey the Little. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The History of Pompey the Little, or The Life and Adventures of a Lapdog, by Francis Coventry. Book One, Chapter Eighteen. More Adventures at Bath. The father of young Jeremy Griskin was so pleased with the advantageous match his son was concluding that in the joy of his heart he could not help talking of it to the alehouse keeper where he lodged, though he had imprecated a thousand curses on his head if ever he revealed. The alehouse keeper, likewise, had bound himself by an equal number of oaths never to discover what he heard from the beggar, and, perhaps, at the time he made these vows, he meant to observe them. But, being once in the possession of a secret, he found it impossible to be long easy with so troublesome a guest in his bosom. With a very mysterious face, therefore, he whispered to several coachmen and footmen, who frequented his house, that a very fine gentleman and lady came privately every night to visit an old blind beggar, who lodged with him, that these fine folks, by what he could learn, were the beggar's son and daughter, and that the fine gentleman lived amongst the quality, and was going to run away with a great fortune. The story, having made this progress, could not fail of proceeding farther, for being once communicated to the servants of several families, it was quickly served up to the tables of the great. The valets informed their masters, and the waiting gentlewomen their mistresses, as a new topic of conversation while they were dressing them. From hence the rumor became public, and dispersed itself all over the bath, so that the very next morning, after the last rendezvous at the alehouse, when Squire Griskin appeared with Lady Marmoset and Miss Newcomb as usual in the pump-room, they found themselves stared on, with more than common attention, by all the company. Several gentlemen laughed aloud as they passed by them. The young ladies all affected to titter under their fans, and the elder dames tossed up their noses with the most insolent air of disdain. All of this could not be done without a meaning. The two ladies, his companions, were greatly astonished, and even the beau himself, fortified as he was in impudence, could not stifle some unpleasant apprehensions. He affected, however, to turn it off with an air of raillery, imputed it to the damned censoriousness of the bath, and expressed his wonder that people could not be allowed to be free and intimate without drawing on themselves the scandalous observations of a whole public place. While Mr. Griskin was supposed to be a gentleman, the whole tribe of coquettes and beauties looked on Miss Newcomb with eyes of jealousy and indignation, all of them envying her happiness of engaging so accomplished a lover. But no sooner were they let into the secret of his parentage than they began to triumph in their turns and showed their malice another way. Envy now changed into contempt. A malicious sneer was seen on all their faces, and they huddled together in little parties to feast on so agreeable a discovery. 
for spite is never so spiteful as among young ladies who are rivals in love and beauty. Really, madam, said one of them, one must be obliged to take care of one's pockets, because, you know, if sharpers are allowed to come into public places and appear like gentlemen, one can never be safe for a moment. To which another replied, Indeed, I shall leave my watch at home when I go to the ball tonight, for I don't think it's safe to carry anything valuable about one, while Miss Newcomb's admirer continues among us. Many such speeches were flirted about, for, though the story hitherto was only a flying suspicion, they were all fully persuaded of its truth, and resolutely bent to believe it, without waiting for any confirmation, and, indeed, without once troubling themselves to inquire on what authority it was founded. The gay sharper manifestly perceived from all this that some discovery had been made to his disadvantage, but not being willing to resign his hopes till affairs appeared a little more desperate, he very courageously presented himself that evening in the ballroom. He was indeed prudent enough to abstain from minuets, not choosing to encounter the eyes of people in so conspicuous an attitude. But as soon as the company stood up to country dances, with a face of infinite assurance, he led Miss Newcomb towards the top of the room, and took his station as usual among the foremost files. A buzz immediately ran through the company, and when they came to dance, most of the ladies refused him their hands. This was a terrible blow to him. He knew not how to revenge the affront, nor yet how to behave under such an interdiction. Lady Marmazat, who saw with what scorn he was treated, very resolutely advanced and reprimanded several of her female acquaintances with much warmth for their behavior, pretending it was an affront to Miss Newcomb, who came to Bath under her protection, and whose cause she was obliged to espouse. In reality, I believe there was another reason which quickened her ladyship's resentment, and made her behold with concern the indignities offered to a man who had found the way of being agreeable to her ladyship, as well as to the young lady her companion. But however that be, to certain her interfering did him little service, and, after a thousand taunts and fleers, the unfortunate couple was obliged to sit down in a corner of the room. They stood up again some time afterwards to make a fresh attempt, proved as unsuccessful as the former. In short, after repeated disgraces, they were obliged to give over all thought of dancing for the remaining part of the night, the poor girl trembling and wondering what could be the reason for all this behavior, and even the beau himself looking foolish under the consciousness of his own condition. As it was pretty plain, however, that his father must have betrayed his secret, the ball no sooner broke up than he flew with the greatest rage to the alehouse, rushed eagerly into the room, where the miserable wretch was then dozing, and fell upon him with all the bitterness of passion. "'Where is this old rascal?' cries he. "'What is it you mean by this, you detestable miscreant? I have a great mind to murder you, and give your carcass to the hounds.' "'Bless us! What's the matter now, Jack?' said the beggar. Matter, returned he. You have been pratting and tattling and chattering. You have ruined me, you old villain. You have blown me up forever. Speak, confess that you have discovered my secrets. Here the beggar stammered and endeavored to excuse himself, but was obliged at last to acknowledge 
that he believed he might have mentioned something of the matter to the man of the house. "'How durst you mention anything of the matter?' cries the son, seizing his father by the throat. "'How durst you open your lips upon the subject? "'I have a great inclination to pluck your tongue out and burn it before your face. "'You have told him, I suppose, that I am your son. "'Tis a lie. You stole me. You kidnapped me. "'Tis impossible I could be the offspring of such an eyeless, shirtless, toothless ragamuffin as thou art. Here I have been insulted by everybody tonight. I have run the cantaloupe through the whole ballroom. All my hopes, all my stratagems are destroyed, and all is owing to your infamous pratting. But mark what I say to you. Set out directly tonight or tomorrow morning before sunrise, and budget off as fast as your legs can carry you. If I find you here tomorrow at seven o'clock, "'By hell, I'll cut your throat. "'You have done mischief enough already. "'You shall do me no more, "'and therefore pack up your wallet and away with you, "'or prepare to feed the crows.' "'Having uttered this terrible denunciation of vengeance, "'he rushed out of the room with as much impetuosity "'as he came into it, "'and left the poor offender staring and trembling with amazement. "'The first thing he did after his son had quitted him was to heave up a prodigious groan, which he accompanied with a moral reflection on the hard fate of all fathers who are cursed with rebellious, unnatural children. As such usage he thought was sufficient to cancel all parental affection, he felt in himself a strong desire at first to be revenged by impeaching and bringing the villain to justice. But then, considering on the other hand that he could not well do this, Without discovering his own hypocrisy and impostures at the same time, he prudently suppressed those thoughts and resolved to quit the place. "'Twas hard, he said to himself, to obey the orders of such an abandoned profligate, but he comforted himself with the agreeable and indeed very probable hopes that he should soon see his son come to the gallows without his being accessory to such an event. Very early, then, the next morning, he set out with his unfortunate little guide and made forced marches for London. Being willing to escape beyond the reach of his son's resentment as soon as possible, he traveled so very fast that, in a little more than a week's time, he arrived at Reading, from whence, after a day's resting, he again renewed his journey. But sorrow and fatigue so entirely overcame him that he fell sick on the road, and, it was with the greatest difficulty that he crawled up to the gate of a celebrated inn, not used to entertaining such guests, where he fainted and dropped down in a fit. Two or three ostlers, who were the first that saw him, conveyed him to an apartment in the stable, where he lay for several days in the most miserable condition. His disorder soon rendered him speechless, and, being able to ask for nothing, he was supplied with nothing. For though the good landlady of the house would gladly have done anything in the world to relieve him, had she known his condition, her servants, happening not to have the same spirit of humanity in them, never once informed her that such an object of charity lay sick in her stable. Finding himself thus neglected and destitute of all comfort, he very prudently gave up the ghost, leaving our hero once more at the disposal of chance. What future scenes of good or evil are next to open upon him? Fate does not yet choose to divulge, 
and therefore begging the reader to suspend his curiosity till we have received a proper commission for gratifying it, we here put an end to this first book of our wonderful history. End of Book One, Chapter 18 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas